you have your copy of God's Word, I do invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus. This morning we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19, looking at the first six verses. If you've got a pew Bible, that can be found on page 60. And as you're turning there, I just want to tell you how good it is to finally be here after our long journey from Lee Summit uh, to make our way here to Columbus, Mississippi. And in some ways that journey is still being made as we speak, uh, but the Lord has been so kind to us. You've all been so kind. And even more than all of that, I'm just excited to study the Word of God with you this morning. And so we're going to do so. And just so you know where we're headed, in the coming weeks we are going to begin a new sermon series. We're going to be walking through the Gospel of John. And so if you want to start reading ahead this week and start looking through that, uh, that's where we're going. Uh, but as it's been quite a week, it wasn't time to start a new series today. And as I begin what I hope to be, and I pray is a long uh, time with you in pulpit ministry, I really wanted to set the stage. And I wanted to do it in a way that the Lord does it here in Exodus 19. Um, this is an uh, interesting passage. We find ourselves just moments before the deliverance of the uh, Ten Commandments. And when I was teaching in a Christian school, I would bring this passage up to my students and would ask them, now why do you think Exodus 19 comes before Exodus 20? And maybe some of you are as quick as that. They are, and they would go, or Pastor Aaron, because 19 comes before 20. And they were very pleased with that answer. In a lot of ways, they're exactly right. But what I meant is, why does the content of Exodus 19 come before the content of Exodus 20? And I believe the Lord not only ordains the words of His Word, but the order of the words of His Word. And so what we get in Exodus chapter 19 is a call to remembrance. It is a call to remembrance. Remember who I am. Remember what I have done. Remember how I have loved you and cared for you and saved you because I'm about to command you to obey. But if you forget these things first, you will not be able to obey and it will actually be to your detriment. But before we're called to obey, we're called to remember the Lord. And so this morning, I want us, just like the people of God, we're called to remember. Let us remember the words of our God by reading Exodus chapter 19. I'll begin in verse 1 and read through the sixth verse. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from the Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please bow with me as we go to him in prayer and ask his blessing on this time. Almighty God, we come before you in need of remembrance. 
Lord, we need to know who you are and we need to know what you have done and we need to know that you are there for your people. You have been from the beginning. You were for the people of Israel during the time of the Exodus and you are still for us today. Oh God, I pray that you would bless our time of study of your word. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might receive your truth this day. I pray all of these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are looking into a text in the middle of a series of uh, the letters of, to Exodus. Let's get a little bit of a background just so we understand where we are and what is going on. The book of Exodus, of course, is the second book written by Moses, often uh, called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. This book in particular describes or details the exodus, the um, fleeing from Egypt and the marching toward the promised land. It is to be read as historical narrative. That is important for it means what is said in it is true. It is history. It happened. It took place. And we should think of these things as such. They are not um, literary devices. They're not tools to cause us to ponder certain truths, although that can be done. But quite literally, they are historical events, accounts recorded for the people of God. If we look at the first book that Moses wrote, the book of Genesis, uh, the foundations of the faith, we see that in that book, primarily, God was dealing with families. Uh, you think of the families of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, and he's dealing with particular peoples. Well, as we go to the book of Exodus, that scope is zoomed out, and here we find God dealing with a nation of people. And really, he's dealing with a nation of people, which is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, that I will make you into a nation of people, a kingdom who loves me and worships me. In this letter, we will um, be introduced to Moses and to Aaron, and it's through their leadership and guidance by the Lord's hand that the people of God are brought from where they were uh, to a path toward where they need to be. And on this particular text, we find ourselves at the base of the Mount Sinai. Moses is about to go up and hear the words of the Lord. He's going to get them, receive them, bring them down, and deliver them to the people. But before we get there, we get this brief prelude, if you will. We find chapter 19, God says, before I give you the Ten Commandments, go back and say this delivered this message to the people. It is vital that they hear these words. And so as we consider these words that Moses was given, I want you to think about three things that God does in our passage. And all of these are things God has done and he's telling us to remember. Remember that God calls his people to himself. Remember that God claims his own people. And then finally, remember that God commands his people to obedience. And so as we study these actions by God, I want you to pay particular attention to the order. Because I do believe the order matters. That God calls, that God claims, and then God commands. So let's walk through our text considering each of these. And our passage does open up with a very specific date, doesn't it? It tells us precisely where they are at what time of the year and what they're doing there. 
Which leads us to ask why. Why record this information? Why have this laid out for us? And I believe there are three answers to that. First, the people had been following the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. When they left Egypt, God's presence went before them. And we were told that the presence of the Lord went before them in the pillars of fire and smoke. And when the pillars moved, the people moved. And when the pillars stopped, the people stopped. And so they were following the guidance of the Lord. The Lord told them when to move. The Lord told them when to stop. He told them when to camp. He told them when to pack up and keep going. This was a mighty display of God before the people. And imagine the encouragement that was. You're, you're told to flee Egypt, a place of safety and comfort in some ways. Of course, there was oppression, and that'll be one of the complaints by the Israelites. It was so much better there. We had food, and we had provision, and yeah, you were being beaten to death. But here, there's God saying, I'm going to take you to a place. And in case you get nervous or worried or anxious, I'm going to place my presence physically before you. I'm going to set my presence before you in pillars and they will be so clear to you, you cannot go off course. You cannot miss the path. Where the pillars go, you go. When the pillars cease, you cease. I will admit to you, it's important you know this about me, I'm directionally challenged. Uh, much to my shame, my father's a land surveyor. Um, actually, well, my brothers are land surveyors and engineers. Um, I need my GPS. It's been really hard because our phone service isn't compatible with Columbus. Um, I don't get places without my device telling me where to go. It'll be three years from now when you go, hey, just Aaron, come turn there and I'm going to understand at least what you're talking about. But can you imagine being the people of Israel? You're told to go into the desert and go to the place where I will tell you, good luck. No coordinates, no turn right at the next stop sign, no go this many miles and then be there. The amount of trust God was requiring of them was astronomical. Believe in me, hope in me, listen to me. That's what he was requiring of them. And so we know they arrived at the base of the mountain on this day, at this time, at this spot, because God literally pulled them there. He said, follow me and I will take you where I need you to go. And so that's the first reason we know that they were there on this date at this time. But not only did they have the pillars, they also had guidance from an earthly leader. We know that they were following Moses. He was placed before the people of God to lead them. And Moses himself was called by God. And how was he called by God? This is a theme you see in the book of Exodus. By a smokeless, non-consuming bush. The presence of the Lord in fire speaking to Moses. Moses, come, take off your sandals, bow before me. You are on holy ground. I am going to speak and you are to listen. And he tried to get out of it, didn't he? Moses didn't want the job. Lord, I'm not qualified. Are you sure there's not anyone else? And I, I don't want to say the Lord got irritated, but you get to the point in the text that he's like, look, you're the man for the job. You're so much the man for the job. I knew you were going to do this, and I've already commissioned your brother to be your number two man. And he's qualified in the things you're complaining about. You're going to go, and you're going to deliver my people, and you're going to take the staff, and you're going to speak the words that I give you. Notice how with Israel it was the Lord is going to go before them, and the Lord is going to provide the way. And what does God do for, for Moses? 
I will go before you and I will guide the way. I'll give you the words to say and because you don't want to say them, I'll give you someone who will. And you just go and represent me. And we know through the plagues uh, that that was effective, especially upon the 10th plague. And so we know that the people of God not only had the presence of the Lord before them, but they had a representative, one to be an intermediary, to speak to God on their behalf and to pray for them. Many times Moses prayed for the people of God to keep God's wrath from falling upon them. They needed Moses. But again, it's really the same story, isn't it? They're here on this day at this time because Moses led them. But how did Moses lead? By the hand of God. And so we find ourselves once again at that singular answer. It's, they're here because God willed it. And really, if you look at that, that's the third reason. They're here because God's plan was for them to be here. And I'd say for us today, if we're honest, too often in life, we, oft, we ignore or forget the fact that God is in complete control. It is He who is guiding and directing our paths. I mean, how many of us have had a setback or an injury or something come up in our lives that we'd have never asked for? We'd have never wished it. 2019, I, I severed my patellar tendon playing ultimate frisbee. Um, with students requiring two surgeries and a year and a half of physical therapy uh, to recover. You don't ask for that. You, you don't. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, to have to physically be carried into the pulpit by the elders of your church to be able to preach, that will humble you. And that will show you that it's not on your own strength or on your own will or by your own ability that you do these things. You do it by the Lord's guidance and his presence and his ability. And while I would never ask for it again, I praise God for those years, those difficult years, because I know he was teaching me to rely upon him. And so think about the people of Israel in the sim not in the exact same circumstance, but in a similar circumstance, they had to trust him, not their own strength, not their own ability, not their own guidance, not their own sense of direction, they had to trust God. This is very important for us. This is important for us to remember as we also consider how the Lord saves his people or claims them. Because we do not come to the Lord unless he first calls. We do not respond to him in faith if he does not already go before us in faith. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we hear and respond to his word. It's why you will hear me often pray for the Holy Spirit to go before us. For it does not matter what I preach this morning. If the power of the Holy Spirit is not upon you and goes before me, it will fall on deaf ears. But if the power of the Holy Spirit is working in your life and through your life, he will call you to respond. He will compel you to respond and you will be unable to do anything but to respond. And so God does not only call his people, but secondly, we see that God claims his people. In this middle section here, Moses goes up to the mountain. It's not just that God brings them there and says, sit here and think about me. Moses goes up and he speaks to the Lord. <laughs> and I'll just say as a, as a preacher, I've often asked for God to give me the right message. And it's usually through much toil and prayer. 
and then on Monday through much regret. But oh, to be Moses. God to speak to him and say, all right, Moses, here you go. You want a message? You don't want to do this? Give these words right here. Here's your passage. Explain it just like this. And what does God say to them? What does God say to the people of Israel? What does he call them to remember? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is an encouragement. This is a preparation for God giving the Ten Commandments. And he starts off with, remember what I just brought you through. So let's take a, a really quick um, zoom through history. What has God just done? Well, as it relates to the Egyptians, he has just freed them from slavery. He has freed them from a level of oppression so great. It affected all aspects of their lives, their ability to work. They were productive, so their taskmasters took away material to make it worse. Their ability to produce children, they were having too many children, so they were told to not let the women have children. And yet the Lord was upon them and blessed them and protected them and ultimately he delivered them from the oppression from the hardship and the heartache of being used as slave labor not only that though he saved them at the Red Sea we love considering this story the people of Israel follow Moses out of Egypt and at that point Pharaoh says oops <laughs> that was a bad idea I just gave away my workforce. These things aren't going to build themselves. I'm in trouble. And so he pursues them. And so you've got the Red Sea at your front. You've got the, the army of Egypt behind. And what do you do? On your own power, on your own strength, do you then start putting out building bridges? Do you swim? What about the children? What about those that cannot swim? Do you turn around and go back and beg for mercy? Not at this point. You trust in the Lord. You wait on Him and His goodness. And by the Lord's goodness, and so that they would remember, God parts the Red Sea. And the text tells us they walked as if it was on dry ground. And then to make sure they knew the Lord's presence was before them, when their enemies came to do the same, the Red Sea closed swallowed them up. One of the greatest military victories in recorded for us in Scripture. An entire nation of warlike people crushed in moments as the Lord's presence is made known so that they would remember. Over and over and over again as God brought salvation to the people of Israel. And when here we do get a literary device he goes on to say that, see and remember how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And you will have to forgive me because this brings to mind a particular book series that I love dearly and as does every pastor, The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And in these books, it's almost a comical state of being, isn't it? When things are dire, when things are desperate, when there is no hope, Tolkien had a get-out-of-jail-free card. He used it sparingly, but he did use it enough that it is known. And that refrain comes, the eagles are coming. The great eagles are coming. And when they come, they prevail. Victory is assured. They are not defeated. They cannot be defeated. 
left up to themselves, the protagonist would certainly die. But right at the last moment, the, the great eagles, the very majestic creatures, come in and save the day. Tolkien is likely using imagery of the Bible here. He's, he's likely using the, the eagle's instinct to carry its young before it's capable of flying. Eagles are known to carry their little ones before they can care for themselves. In John Calvin's commentary on this section, he says, The imagery is used because God has time and time again swooped in and rescued his people. He has brought them salvation and protection at the exact moment that they needed it most. This is important for us to remember as well. God not only calls us to himself, but he is the one who brings us salvation. It is when we are up a tree that is on fire and the enemies are about us and there is no hope of save or rescue that the Lord comes. And with his loving arms, he takes us safely away. I just want you to remember one thing about this. It is not us that saves. It's the Lord that saves. This is vital as we get to our third point here in a moment. And when that happens, when the Spirit comes before us and speaks into our lives and we repent and turn from our sin and trust in God, we are transformed. And it does change our lives. I could tell you stories of marriages that have been saved by the Lord bringing to bear his presence upon the household. I could tell you of families that were transformed, of lives, of careers, of peoples, of nations. That all were humbled by the presence of God. And the beautiful thing in all of this is when we trust that it is the Lord who works and it is the Lord who saves it reminds us we can't mess it up. Because I, I will be the first to admit, if it's up to me, if I can play 1% of the part of my own salvation, I am to be most pitied for I'm doomed. But if it is God who saves, he will not let us go. But it does not end there. It does not end there, and this is a beautiful passage in and of itself, and we could end there, but the passage continues, so we are compelled to continue. God calls his people, God claims his people, and then, and only then, does God command his people. Look at me at our final section. It is after he reminds them of who he is, it is after he reminds them of what he has done, that he says, now obey. There's immense blessing here. If you will indeed obey, you will be to me a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. If you obey my commands, place your hope and trust and faith in me, you will be my representatives before the earth. Why does this fit in? And I'll bring us back to that beginning question, why is 19 before 20? What is God about to give? He's about to give the moral law. He's about to show the people of Israel how to obey. But what would have happened if 20 came before 19? We would get something like this. Here are my commands. 
give the Ten Commandments. Now, if you do them, you will be blessed and I will love you and I will save you and I will protect you and I will provide for you. See how then the emphasis shifts. Not love God because he's worth loving. Not love God because he has saved me. Not obey God because of what he's done. It's obey God because of what he will do. God all of a sudden becomes a, a, a slot machine. He, he becomes something that if I can rack up a good week where I follow the commandments, I get 8 out of 10 this week. That's been a phenomenal week. Maybe there's a blessing coming my way this weekend. Maybe God will provide something special for me. And it is tempting, isn't it? It's tempting as Christians to, to get in that mindset Unfortunately, sometimes this can even creep into our worship. Well, I've got a lot of things to do today, but I guess I'll go to church. God's watching. Yeah, I probably should tithe. He tells me to. Maybe I'll get a bonus at work, get an extra day off, or my children to behave, whatever it may be. Sometimes we, we get wrapped up in this, don't we? we? There's a temptation to start putting... Really, God owes us because we did this. But God knows that's our heart. He knows that's the way we think. He knows that's our tendency. And so, right here in Exodus, he said, remember what I have done. I have called you. I have saved you repeatedly. I have declared you mine. And now I say, obey me because of who I am and what I've done, not so that you will receive. And here's the beauty of God. He doesn't say you won't receive because you obey. He actually says if you obey, there will be blessing. There will be benefits. Why? Because you will be more and more conformed to the image of God. You will want the things that God wants. You will seek to serve him. And the joy of that working in your heart and working in your life, it will transform your marriage. It will transform your ability to work. It will transform how you raise your children. It will change how you give in the offering. As we read earlier today, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Oh, that we would get to the point that what we put in the plate, we do it gladly and willingly because God is worthy. Not because we feel that's the right number for today. And I, and I don't mean to, to, to pick on um, the offering because we can do that with any of this. But let me, let me show you really quickly why this is important. What is Israel's greatest sin? If you go through the, the Old Testament, you, you look through the narrative, what is their greatest struggle with sin? What happens? It's a, it's a cycle. It happens. It's an up and down when things are good, when they have blessing and possession and all of their needs are met, who do they forget? God. When things are good, they forget God. And then God brings judgment. He brings persecution. He brings trials. He humbles them. The book of Judges is a great example of this. And then where do they go? To God. And so they put their hope and trust in him and he restores them and he brings them back. And then all of a sudden things get good again. And what do they do? Over 
and over and over again. This cycle was true for the people of Israel. When things are good, I trust in me. God owes me this. I deserve this. I'm the people of God. I mean, come on. We're Israel. And then it goes bad. So let me just say, if this is true for an entire nation of people, and really is true for the entirety of the Old Testament, aren't we all prone to the same behavior? And doesn't the Lord know that we need to hear this today, to be reminded that's not how he's called us to be? So I want to give you two quick takeaways as we conclude this morning. First, I want you to know the Lord cares greatly for his people. He says, remember how I have saved you over and over again with the Egyptians through slavery at the Red Sea. Remember what I have done for you. But we have an even greater example, even a greater example than the salvation of Israel. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that's not a great act of love, I don't know what is. So that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And let me clinch it by tagging on Romans 5, 6, and 7. While we were still weak, we were still sinners, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We've not done anything to accomplish it. I believe it was Edwards that would often say, what we bring to the table is the sin that made salvation necessary. But that's how great our God loves his people. He saved them in Egypt. He saves us today by the work of his son. Let us praise God for his wonderful saving work. And maybe you're here today and you're not yet trusting in the Lord. To you, I offer this message this is how far God is willing to go for his people. Do you feel lonely? Do you feel hurt? Do you feel lost? Do you feel uncertain? Do you feel like you need help? God is offering that help. He is offering it. He will go to such lengths that he will bring judgment upon his son that his people might be saved. He will forgive you. He will love you. He will call you to be his own. If you but submit to him. This is the love of which, with which our God loves us. This does not excuse us from obeying. That's another heresy for another time. But put in its proper place, it allows us to obey with a grateful heart. Because it does change our life. It is my desire for my ministry here at Main Street... That together, we as the people of God, we learn how to love God as he deserves and calls us to. And that we grow together in our desire and ability to know his word and follow his commands. And the only way we're going to be able to do that 
is by trusting in what he has provided, resting in his strength, and hoping in him today and in the days to come. May God do it. Let us pray. Almighty God, I pray for this church. I pray for these people. I pray for my own heart and for my family. Would you do a mighty work in our lives? Lord, we need you. We desperately need you. This church needs you. This town needs you. Our denomination needs you. This country needs you. This world needs you. And we have your word, your truth, your hope, your message at hand. May we cling to it. May we remember your saving work, how you have repeatedly provided for us, cared for us, and loved us, even when we despised you, God. And would you, through us, use us as vessels of hope and encouragement as we now share this word with others. May we go forth this day and proclaim this truth to the lost. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to be together, to gather before your word, to hear its truth. May it transform lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.